0: This episode of New Politics was released on the 11th of March, 2023, and produced on the land of the Wombol and Wajak people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, we look at the week in federal politics. The New South Wales Independent Commission Against Corruption finds that corrupt behaviour in New South Wales is not actually corrupt. And we prepare ourselves for war with China. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics.
1: I'm David Lewis, still annoyed I didn't become trade commissioner to the Americas.
0: And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription, but whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a t-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. Parliament has been sitting again this week and, as usual, there's lots of issues to explore. We had the former Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, appearing at the RoboDebt Royal Commission and he seemed to be afflicted with the same amnesia that's affected so many other people from the Liberal National Party. He couldn't recall key details and couldn't outline who he thought was responsible for the Robo Debt scheme. The Liberal Party is still prepared to die in a ditch over the Labor government's proposal to raise the tax on superannuation accounts of over $3 million, and given that 64% of the electorate supports this change and only 29% oppose, it seems like quite a futile position that they've adopted – And the week ended with even more pressure on Opposition Leader Peter Dutton, who is making no inroads at all, he's backing all the wrong proposals and seems to be a leader who's there just for the sake of it. But the most important issue that the Liberal Party decided to focus on was the state of the Australian flag on top of Parliament House, which was damaged due to strong winds and thunderstorms and accusing the government of lacking national pride because the flag was damaged. And... We thought that there were quite a few more important issues that the government needs to address, but David, it looks like we got it all wrong. Repairing the flag on top of the Australian Parliament House is the biggest issue of our time.
1: How are we supposed to wear our swagman's hats, drink Billy tea, watch the footy, drive Holden cars and do all the stuff that real Australians, copyright trademark, capital letters, are supposed to do if... The sacred flag on top of our beloved Parliament House is damaged. And yes, I'm being sarcastic. (laughs) I'm sure most of our listeners would understand that. It's such a brainless thing to argue about. Of course the flags get down and they get replaced every so often anyway because a bit of material outside doesn't last. It's every four or five weeks that they replace the flag and it's part of the maintenance schedule. It's a large amount in terms of, say, a weekly household budget, but in terms of the running of Parliament House, it's not that big an amount. To point this out means that they really don't know what to do. I think they're being outflanked on all sides by a smarter Labour Party, more capable Labour Party, and a more competent Labour Party in government. Now, this isn't to say that we agree with everything the Labour Party does. This isn't to say that there haven't been a few scandals, one major and a few minor ones. This isn't to say that they will remain a perfect shining beacon of light of public administration forever. But the Liberal Party is in such disarray and the coalition really is in such disarray. But the Liberal Party in particular is in such disarray. This is the best it can come up with.
0: So the Liberal Party's focus on these stunts and dramas. Last week they had a stunt about honey and funny and superannuation. This week it's the Liberal MP Dan Tehan complaining about the torn Australian flag on top of Parliament House. We also had the Liberal Party MP Paul Fletcher... Claiming that Parliament was a shambles because the doors to Parliament House were opened up a few minutes late on Tuesday. Now I'd say that Parliament opening its doors a few minutes late isn't much of a shambles compared to the robo debt Scheme, $1 billion in national government debt or a second rate national broadband network, but maybe that's just me. But the situation with the Australian flag on top of Parliament House, as you mentioned before, David, it is actually replaced every four or five weeks and because there were thunderstorms and strong winds in Canberra, it was damaged more than the usual amount and and it was too dangerous for workers to get up there and replace the flag. So this is yet another mountain made out of a molehill and this story was amplified on Sky News and Nine Media and once again the really, really, really important things and This follows on from Peter Dutton saying that he'll repeal the superannuation changes that the Labor government has proposed, even though there is popular support for these changes, even amongst Coalition voters. So we can see what their strategy is, and that's to focus on every small detail to make it seem like everything is a problem. Everything has become a problem since Labor returned to office, and this is the strategy that they'll probably keep using. So. I guess we just have to get used to it and who knows, it might end up being effective just as it was effective between 2010 and 2013 for the Liberal and National parties at that time. But essentially they're doing this, that nitpicking on every minor issue and even making up these issues because it feeds into that narrative of a government in crisis. And the other reason is because they've got nothing else to offer at this stage.
1: It's... Almost as if they saw how the Labour Party won by pointing out a government in crisis. But the difference is, of course, at at the moment, Labour is still fairly unified. It's still achieving things. It's still mostly more competent, or it's, it's more competent than the last government. So to present the government in crisis is just, one, it points out hypocrisy is too strong a word in this case it points out the incongruity of somebody like paul fletcher saying that the government's in chaos or Dan han saying ah oh, look at this the government can't get anything done you know tihan was one of the least productive ministers in a government not known for its productivity fletcher was always just an annoyance really in public debate so to call the government a shambles absolutely ridiculous and I can't see how they think this would work, except, one, I think they think that the Australian public can be moved into a state of apathy, and that the Australian public isn't as smart as Labour likes to think it is. And sure, they'll get their supporters saying, oh, yes, look at that, terrible, the flag hasn't been replaced. And two press releases later, there's a good reason as to why. So I don't know who they're talking to or about, except they're talking to the Sky News people, believing that that's where the battle will be won. It worked for them in, what, 2013, and then it didn't really work since. It, generals keep fighting the last war, is the old maxim. This is the, the generals in the on the liberal side. Hopefully they can get something going with appeals to patriotism, and as Dr Johnson told us, the last refuge of a scoundrel. Appeals to being unfair in ways that aren't really, as you rightly pointed out. Even people in that tax bracket, the small group of people who want no tax, no government, are the ones who are really pushing all of this in the hope that they can get their side back into office and their side can keep carving it up for themselves and destroying everything to really take the government away. And it's failing. It's failed on The Voice, Dutton painted himself into a massive corner, he can't get out of there. It's failed on the flag, for God's sake. It's failed on government chaos. The government's not in chaos. As I said, we mightn't like everything they do and they may turn chaotic, but at the moment it's still a competent, capable government who is making serious policy inroads. And
0: to further add to the problems of the Liberal Party, the Annual Church and State Summit in Brisbane has called on right-wing Christians to take over the Liberal Party branches all across Australia. And I'd say that the current batch of Liberal Party MPs, they can't see the wood for the trees and probably wouldn't see this as a problem. But the way that I see it is that the Liberal Party is almost on its last legs in its current form. And if the infiltration of the party from these right-wing religious groups does happen over the next three to five years, well that's the end of the party and we will continue to give free advice to the Liberal Party, pro bono, charity or whatever you want to call it, but this process has to be resisted at all costs. The Church and State Summit that had speakers such as former National Party leader John Anderson, former Liberal National Party MP George Christensen was there, as was Catherine Deaves and Jacinda Price, this is unhinged right-wing Extremism. It's all about that QAnon Great Reset theory. There's all of those claims of Satan taking over the Western civilization. And these are beliefs and ideas that exist on the fringes. There was also that group of men from the Christian Lives Matter group that were terrorizing the LGBTQI community in Newtown. And that was at the end of the World Pride and Mardi Gras events in Sydney. These people are a menace, and it's the same people that were taking down ribbons at George Powell's funeral several weeks ago. These people are on the fringes, and we could argue that everyone should have some sort of political representation, but these people are fundamentally undemocratic. They really are on the fringes, and they want to impose their beliefs on the rest of the world. So if these groups do ever take over the branches of the Liberal Party, well, that's goodbye
1: to the Liberal Party. They'll be
0: gone very quickly if this ever happens. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Before I go on, I do want to state that there are many, many people of the Christian faith who are good people, who are people who use their faith as a way to shape their ethical and moral outlook on the world and try and shape their behavior in that way, who are humble, who stumble and fall, who generally try to put more back into the world than they take out. So when I'm about to go nuclear, I don't include those people who I would even go so far to say are the majority of Christian people. The groups wanting to take over the Liberal Party are racist. They're sexist. They're dishonest. They're hypocrites. They're exactly the types of people that when you go into the New Testament, Jesus talks about in a negative way. The Pharisees who don't behave in a way that is godly, the rich man who prays loudly at the temple and then ostentatiously gives the money so everybody can seize the donation. Whereas we know that Jesus preferred the one who went in quietly, prayed in a way of just forgive me for everything I've done and quietly left money. These people use their faith as a weapon, not as a sustaining moral background. The hypocrisy is immense. George spent a lot of time in the Philippines. We don't know what he was doing there. We do know that ASIO was very interested in his movements there. To what end, we don't know. But a lot of Christianity shouldn't attract the attention of ASIO. Catherine Deves and her abhorrent anti-trans movement. And, of course, it's all dog whistling and it's... And someone pointed out that exactly the same things were said about gay people in the 70s and 80s, that they were grooming children, that they were trying to take over, that they had a, an agenda to bring a gay agenda into the world. And it's the same thing now with trans people. But it's really upsetting to to watch people being kicked into just because there's a perceived difference. But somebody else pointed out that the biggest organisation for child abuse is a little thing out of Rome called the Catholic Church. I won't go on further with that, but there's a lot of implications there.
0: And we have to issue a correction. Last week we mentioned that the final report of the RoboDebt Royal Commission is due on the 18th of April. That's actually been extended to the 30th of June so apologies to all those people who ordered a special batch of popcorn you'll just have to wait a little bit longer to see that final report but as we pointed out last week the Robo debt royal Commission has established the pattern of behaviour in the robo debt scheme and that seems to be shut up and do as you're told don't come to me with your complaints about illegal behaviour it's someone else's problem or someone else is responsible for that and finally there's also a high level of collective amnesia. And this week we had the former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull front up to the Royal Commission. He seemed to forget about quite a few issues from that time, which is quite amazing for someone who successfully prosecuted that spy catcher case in Britain all those years ago. But that was 35 years ago, so maybe his memory has dropped off just a little bit. But there's also a lot of assumptions that he made. He just assumed that the Minister of the time, Alan Tudge, had it all under control, but looks like he didn't, so Malcolm Turnbull was actually a poor witness at the Robo-Debt Royal Commission. There was also the encore appearance by Catherine Campbell, and she was the Secretary of Human Services at the time, and we've generally refrained from commenting about public servants because essentially they're the lackeys of government of the day, and they're just doing what they're told to do. Catherine Campbell is now the roving advisor to AUKUS. Now, I'm not exactly sure what that involves, but... After her appearances at the RoboDebt Royal Commission, which have pretty much been abysmal, there's no public confidence in her. But removing this person, this might be a little bit difficult because she was actually appointed by a Labor government all the way back in 2011. But you really can't have these sorts of people within the public service because they're not actually acting
1: in the interests of the public. No. And her position is now untenable. You have to be careful sacking public servants because the public service should give free and fearless advice and frank advice. She did none of that. Her lack of care. And I know that the options are limited. We've had the ridiculous claim of Stuart Robert when he said, I would got legal advice, but legal advice is just advice. It's insane. And she seems to be part of that culture. Of This is the end we want. We don't care how we get it. And I think this is the thing that even the robo debt commissioners haven't mentioned yet. I can't say that they haven't picked up on it, but they haven't mentioned it yet. And it might be being saved that these people did all this stuff without the fear of consequence. And this was the whole thing. The reason that the Morrison government trashed convention was because convention doesn't actually really allow for consequence except for the consequence of yourself. I did the wrong thing. I'm resigning. It's set a precedent and we have to be careful that Labor doesn't decide that this is a good thing. There's been some worrying things from Labor. The Prime Minister's diary not being open to a freedom of information request, let alone not being open at all. Diaries should be open. Who the Prime Minister is meeting and when they're meeting should be a public document. And the precedent was set by the Morrison government by just not looking after convention. And we're seeing this in robo-debt. Do we follow legal advice? No. Do we bring in a flawed methodology to collect debts that don't exist? Yes. It was a tragedy and everyone involved is responsible. And hopefully serious consequence will come from this. Not just the trashing of their names. Catherine Campbell will never be able to find another job. Scott Morrison cannot find another job. Alan Tudge is unemployable.
0: So it seems that Scott Morrison is getting quite a bit of a workout today. Sorry about that to the people who say we say his name too much. But also during the week, we had International Women's Day, and that's a very significant day all around the world. And thankfully, we didn't have all the dramas that we've had over the past few years. We want to see women rise, but we don't want to see women rise only on the basis of others doing worse. Today, here and in many cities across our country, women and men are gathering together in rallies, both large and small, to call for change and to act against violence directed towards women. This is a vibrant liberal democracy, Mr Speaker. Not far from here, such marches, even now, are being met with bullets, but not here in this country, Mr Speaker. Not here in this country. This is a triumph of democracy when we see these things take place. And sorry about that. That was the former Prime Minister Scott Morrison again and probably should have come with a content warning. But International Women's Day should be a day of reflection and celebration. You don't really need political leaders taking the limelight with their sexist and misguided commentary. And that didn't happen this year. So it's been a good International Women's Day this year without too many dramas And then the week finished off with more discussions about Peter Dutton's leadership position. And he's been there for nine months, and it's been nine months of low energy, no inspiration. And in Parliament this week, it seems that he didn't understand standing orders and the parliamentary rules either. So a political point that he was trying to make didn't end up being made. And he's still making noises about putting King Charles on the $5 note again, as if that's really important. And politically... As poor as Peter Dutton has been, I think it would be a mistake to remove him at this stage, and here we are giving some more free advice to the Liberal Party. He's just really a placeholder, but keep him in there for as long as possible, absorb all the hits. At this stage, there is nobody else. The Labor government is probably going to be in office for two terms, and the Liberal Party should be nurturing someone else. And I know that there isn't a parliamentary training school for how to be a Prime Minister that aspiring Prime Ministers can attend. And then they get a diploma or a certificate at the end of the course. But this is what they somehow need to do. And I don't know who that person is going to be, but Peter Dutton will never be Prime Minister. And I'm pretty certain about that, having previously said that you can never underestimate a political leader. But maybe... For all of this time, we've been overestimating Peter Dutton's political skills. He's just going to be biding his time at the moment, but the Liberal Party really needs to start doing some long-term leadership planning, and they need to start doing this pretty quickly as well.
1: When Robert Menzies resigned, he said to Harold Holt, look after Artie, meaning... Arthur Colwell, the leader of the Labour Party, who was not performing well as opposition leader, who couldn't match Menzies' intelligence and grasp of policy and and all of that. Because Menzies knew that if Whitlam got in, that would be the end of the Liberal Party. And that Whitlam was a much more shrewd, intelligent and capable politician than Arthur Colwell was. And it's the same. Albo, look after Spud. (laughs) I mean, but to be fair, at the moment, there's nobody else. I'm not sure, and I think I've said this before too, that the next Liberal Prime Minister is even in Parliament yet. I'm not even sure they're a member of the party yet, and maybe that's a bit harsh, and maybe I'm being a a bit too short-term in this.
0: But the other point is that somebody has to be the leader. If Peter Dutton resigns now, well, someone else is going to be in that position.
1: It's just a question of who will that be, because it's not very clear at this stage. That's the point I'm trying to make. There's no pretender to the throne. And I can't think of any... Non left figure outside of Parliament who could sweep in. I can't think of any leading figure who's not a laughing stock on the right at the moment.
0: You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, and Amazon Music, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support new politics through Patreon.
1: There must be some kind of way out of here, said the Joker to the thief.
0: getting closer to the day of the New South Wales election just two more weeks to go but the big news has been the revelation that the New South Wales Independent Commission Against Corruption has assessed that there was no corruption to be found against the former leader of the New South Wales National Party John Barillaro when he somehow ended up with the position of the New South Wales Trade Commissioner to the Americas and I think we need to look at what's happened. While he was still the leader of the National Party and in New South Wales Parliament, he created the position of New South Wales Trade Commissioner to the Americas. And another highly credentialed person was initially appointed to the position. John Barilaro then resigned from politics. The appointment made to that highly credentialed person was rescinded. John Barilaro then applied for the position. He didn't actually make the shortlist. He dodged up his CV and misrepresented his credentials and achievements Phone calls were made. The former New South Wales Minister for Trade, Stuart Ayres, he intervened. And John Barillaro ended up with the job, which has got a salary of $500,000. Now, John Barillaro, he was forced to not take up the position, but that's beside the point. But in the lead up to all of this and all of these actions, how is this not corrupt? Now, we might be missing something here, David, but this is about as corrupt as you can
1: get, even by New South Wales standards. ICAC was always the shining light in New South Wales politics. New South Wales politics is dirty and corrupt. It's run by vested interests who have overstepped the mark in recent years. ICAC was always a balance. We know this because each time Mike Baird or Gladys Berejiklian's governments got too hammered by ICAC, they'd cut the funding. And so ICAC has been running on a shoestring. It demonstrated beyond a doubt that there were improprieties in the Berejiklian government. And had it been given the, the brief to, it almost certainly would have found problems in the Bed government too. And the O'Farrell government. I can say that because O'Farrell stepped down over the acceptance of a gift of a bottle of wine. So Barillaro, who on the face of it, blind Freddy with a blindfold on in a sensory deprivation tank with all the lights turned out in the surrounding areas could have seen that there was something smelly going on, that there was something not right going on. The press release doesn't actually give any reasons and basically says the commission decided to investigate whether in relation to the recruitment of the Senior Trade and Investment Commissioner to the Americas, John Barilaro, Stewardess, Amy Brown, or any other public official breached public trust or exercised their official functions dishonestly or partially or adversely affected the honest or impartial exercise of official functions by any public official. Uh, They go through what evidence they used very broadly, and then the investigation did not identify any evidence of corrupt conduct. Now, Usually the report comes out as well and you can go through and they can say, well, it wasn't corrupt because this happened and that happened and stuff that we may not have been aware of. It's disappointing that they've just decided that nothing corrupt happened, which will put, I think, every senior appointment in New South Wales under the gun or under the spotlight for the next 20 years. Now, okay, you could say, look, barrel another unemployable, he suggested becoming CEO of Clubs New South Wales. And Clubs New South Wales had a press release out in about 30 seconds saying, no thanks, I suspect he'll have to invest in some kind of small business that doesn't require his reputation to thrive like a cleaning business or something. I'm not disparaging those jobs, by the way, but for a man who had the arrogance to think that he could live in New York for basically free, doing nothing for three or five years... And for a man who is suspected, though I will be clear here, not accused, uh, he's very lucky to not be in more trouble than he is because the fact that his name could be linked to such a thing suggests that people think him capable of such actions and they think he's capable of such actions because he's acted in particular ways before or at least he's been perceived to have acted in particular ways before. Oh, well, those perceptions are very important, but it's
0: hard to know what's actually happened at the New South Mm. Wales ICAC. They might have had some work experience, people working in there for a while, or maybe they were staring at a blank wall trying to work out what to do, but almost every part of this saga has breached public trust, and on face value, to me, it appears that there was a lot of corruption involved, and as you mentioned before, David, there's not even a report for the ICAC to explain its decision or why or how it arrived at its decision, so there's no report, just this statement that the Commission will not be making any further comment, and no further information can be revealed due to secrecy laws. Now, this is totally unacceptable, and and that's not just because we don't like the decision that they've made or the ruling that they've made, but a no corruption ruling made on the eve of an election in New South Wales. There's no report. There's no further comment. It's got all the hallmarks of the New South Wales Independent Commission Against Corruption being pressured to make a particular kind of decision. And there's also the report of corruption allegations against former Premier Gladys Berejiklian. That was meant to have been released in February 2022, and that's over a year ago but we're still waiting here. There's not even an interim report on that, just regular statements saying that they need more time to complete their investigation or complete their report. And I do realise that the New South Wales government is hardly going to try and fast-track an investigation into one of their own, especially if it's likely to contain some very bad and damaging news. But the New South Wales ICAC seems to be lacking independence, and that's supposed to be the key feature of this organisation.
1: I suppose it should be pointed out that it was lawyers for Gladys Berejiklian who have stretched out by needing more time to respond to the findings. I've said this before, I think I'm not sure what response they can make to a final report that requires more time. It's either fair cop gov, or we'll see you at the Supreme Court of New South Wales. But that's where that came from. But again, Why ICAC keep allowing this is problematic. And again, it goes down to the stinky way that New South Wales is run. When Perrottet became Premier, the first thing he does is tap a keg for clubs New South Wales. And that was really them saying, we're in charge here. This is what we think you as, just someone else who pours the beers while we do the work. New South Wales is long overboard for a clean-up. I don't think it'll be the Minsk government who does it, to be sadly honest and disappointingly honest. I think the mood in the public is for the old way of things to change and for a new and more open and more honest way of things to come through. And in these things, you're either on the side of change or you're against it. And if the change is a good side, if you're against it, it doesn't make for long and and storied careers.
0: And this is not a... Very big point to make, but the entire Sydney train network did come to a standstill during the week, and it was a major inconvenience for commuters and passengers. This time, the New South Wales government couldn't blame the unions. It was all their own work with the major software malfunction that meant that the trains couldn't move at all for about five hours. And for a New South Wales government that's trying to shore up its credentials, this is the last thing that it actually needed trains in New South Wales, they always seem to be symbolic of how a government is travelling. The last New South Wales Labor government kept on promising new train projects and train lines that were never delivered or even started. This New South Wales government commissioned all those trains that didn't fit through tunnels. It had some trains that wouldn't even fit on the train tracks. And you'd think, well, that's a basic requirement for a train to actually fit on the train tracks. And... This week there's been all those service disruptions in the final weeks before the election day and even Mussolini got the trains running on time and based on what Dominic Perrottet was wearing at his 21st birthday party you might have thought that he would have taken note of this but this is the sign of a government that is coming to an end. It's gone way past its use-by date and just like their federal counterparts the New South Wales Liberal and National parties will have to do some soul-searching they will have to go away and work out what they can offer to the public to be politically successful in the future.
1: It's the last of the neoliberal governments. I've said that before too. But the point is is that once this government has gone, there's no reason for Australia to not completely remove itself of the shackles of the failed and disastrous neoliberal politics that have really run it since 1977. With the exception of the Rudd government and, I guess, the Gillard government, every other government used neoliberalism as the basis of its economic policy. Even the Hawke and Keating governments used it, even if they tried to ameliorate the results of it through other policies. I don't know that it'll be a return to Keynesianism because there's a sense in which you can't go back. And it'll still probably take another 10 years for a new system to be brought in. We can look at the failed Reserve Bank governor raising interest rates in a period where spending is down in an attempt to curb spending which is already curbed. They have no imagination. They have no creativity. They have no fundamental understanding of how the system that they run works. In New South Wales, Perrottet is done. He's going to join the long list of unemployables. Today's theme is the unemployables. He he won't be seen as a wise older statesman of the party. He'll just be another forgotten non-entity whose picture appears on the walls of State Parliament House and people who sat in a chair doing nothing until they were removed from that chair. You're listening
0: to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts Listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. Apparently we have to prepare for war with China in three years' time, so we should order our military fatigues now and get into a bit of practice. And this was the assertion from the City Morning Herald and The Age, both owned by Nine Media and followed up with a bit more blustering from News Corporation. And it's part of Nine Media's Red Alert series, and Red Alert is a five-person panel comprising former senior Defence Department official Peter Jennings, University Lecturer in Strategic Studies and Criminology, Lavina Lee, former Federal Chief Scientist Alan Finkel, the Chair of the National Institute of Strategic Resilience, Leslie Seebeck, and retired Army Major General Mick Ryan. It's got no official capacity, it's just a collection of former officials, they're all white Anglo people, there's no one on this panel from a Chinese background, and I don't think any of these people are notable experts on the politics of China. But if you do want to read some tabloid sensationalist garbage, well this is the place to go to. The topic of the conversation is, is Australia prepared for war with China? And what does that even mean? Australia will never be prepared for a war with China. And... The other thing is, well, why are we even talking about a war with China? And some of these people are hawks on the idea of war with China. Peter Jennings from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute definitely is. And one of the journalists who wrote up the story, Peter Harcher, he's consistently had an unhinged anti-China perspective in most of his articles And David, we've been critics of the media for its conservative biases in the past, that's what we commonly talk about each week, but this would have to be some of the most irresponsible
1: journalism that you could ever come across. China and Australia have had traditionally good relationships since about seventy two, when Gough Whitlam officially recognised China as a state. Now Malcolm Fraser and John Howard, and of course Howard's 20 years later, but Malcolm Fraser and John Howard never rescinded this recognition. Now John Howard had problems with the Chinese community that were of his own making, but in terms of the relationship with China, China's our biggest trade partner. And we have, of course, Many people of Chinese heritage in Australia. But it's funny how the media distorts this stuff. There are people of Chinese descent who have been in Australia since the 1850s, which is, I'm going to bet, a lot longer than three or four of that panel of hawks. Now, the other thing we have to remember is William Randolph Hearst, the American media mogul, said that war was good for his business. And so he stirred up war. And this has been a part of media strategy to get influence. You stir up conflict and war because people buy papers to see what's going on. It's a new media market. People aren't buying papers and they don't go to the newspapers for their first line of inquiry anymore. They've basically lost the under 35s. I think it's less than one in 20 under 35 buy newspapers with any regularity. Of course, what they want is the influence. They can handle the loss of sales, but politicians looking at the headlines and saying, oh no, what will people think of me? Oh no, people want war with China. I don't think anybody wants war with China. And I reckon the first people to be sent to China with weapons to actually get some shots fired at them in anger is those five. Maybe the general could handle it, but I'm pretty sure the others couldn't.
0: And of course, there are tensions between China and the United States, as there were between the Mm. United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War period. And that's been the nature of big power geopolitics pretty much forever, and There always has to be a threat from a big country that can be portrayed as the other and that fulfills the needs of the military industry, not just in the United States but all around the world. And for all of the time of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, there was never one act of war between them, although you could argue that it got very close during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, but superpowers never go to war against each other, so that's one issue, and there were also tensions between China and Australia during the time of the coalition government, maybe after 2015 or thereabouts afterwards, and Australia is slowly patching up that relationship with China. Now, I'm not trying to be all pollyanna about this and claim that everything's fine. There are problems with the Chinese government, and the relationship between China and Australia has got issues as well. But I don't think that going to war with China is one of these problems. And the Sydney Morning Herald and Nine Media doesn't actually explain how a war in three years' time with China is going to happen or what is going to precede this or what the circumstances are. It's just sensationalist clickbait material and it's all pretty much according to the Australian Strategic Policy Institute's propaganda and propping up her defence industry that wants to boost sales and if we have a look at the links within the Liberal Party and just wanted to point out that former Labour MPs have also got links with the defence industry too but the former Liberal Party Minister Christopher Pine, he's on the board of NIOA and that's an Australian military manufacturer based in Queensland he's also on the board of the Australian missile corporation and there's also the former liberal party treasurer peter Costello. he's on the chair of nine media so there's a lot that needs to be looked at here pushing that argument that australia is not prepared for war with china well look who actually benefits from all of this and essentially we've got a mainstream media outlet with political connections that's doing the bidding of the military industry in australia it's absolutely outrageous
1: the outrage is palpable lives are at risk Even if it's a few skirmishes, you never hear of a skirmish where neither side had casualties. And America is declining as a great power. China is expanding as a great power. So there's going to be those tensions. But neither side, I think, wants to commit too much to war. America doesn't want to risk losing another war. China doesn't want to risk being weakened at a crucial part of its growth. Australia doesn't really figure into this type of thinking, by the way, I don't think. I think if you were to ask Chinese military, they'd say, yes, Australia might take us three days, four if the wind's the wrong way and we have to recalibrate some of our cannons. Even suggested as a semi-serious thing is insane. And it shows just how desperate the mainstream media is in Australia to remain relevant
0: And the former Prime Minister, Paul Keating, he's also joined the conversation and he's accused these media outlets of producing the most egregious and provocative news presentations in over five decades, and that's probably correct. But while we might be all getting up in arms about this, I don't think this will really have a great effect or great influence. I'd say that the Beijing leadership is probably having a good chuckle about this the two way trade between china and australia is worth 235 billion dollars each year that's 153 billion in exports for australia and imports from china are valued at around 82 billion dollars per year so these are big figures and neither country would want to harm that economic relationship so generally this type of reporting probably isn't going to cause any kind of war or have any effect in Beijing but it just continues with all of those racist tropes red alert that's almost like the reds under the bed commentary or all of that yellow peril from Menzies time and before and it just feeds into that racist undercurrent in Australia that the media has had so many opportunities to shed but it just wants to keep hanging on to that just for the sake of a few newspaper sales and keeping its right-wing advertisers happy and, as you mentioned before, keeping its influence as well. And it seems that Australia is more concerned about war than anyone else in the world. And as far as I'm concerned... A war with Australia wouldn't even be on China's radar. Australia is actually more concerned about war in Taiwan than even the Taiwanese are. and Taiwan's actually on the doorstep of mainland China. And all of this just promotes that idea of Australia being a small, insecure country that will never grow up and is still fearful of its own shadows. And it also puts pressure on the Chinese communities in Australia. They're the ones who usually bear the brunt of these media paranoias and racist undertones.
1: Yeah, and racism is still a driving force of Australian discourse. I don't think I need to really say that to any of our listeners, especially those of non-Anglo backgrounds. And again, racism doesn't really factor in to the under-35s. So this is short-term thinking as each year we get more under-35s eligible to vote and less over-65s around. Now, before you all say, I'm over 65 and I've never voted, I know that. These are all general tendencies. There's a lot of very radical older people who've never been racist and and we acknowledge and I acknowledge and I praise them. But that's where the issue is. And so outdated, short-term, dangerous ideas such as this take hold. And it's the same in print media. There's no long-term thinking. It's all about maintaining not developing and until people grow up and get a hold of that that's going to be the great i'll call it tragedy of australian right-wing thinking
0: that's it for this episode of new politics thanks for listening in if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au we don't beg plead beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis.
1: We'll see you next time.